there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Diana, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Diana Anderson is a freelance journalist, a author, and activist in women's issues. She has written a bunch of different things, including for places like Cosmopolitan, Rolling Stone, The Establishment, and Vice. Her first book is Damaged Goods, New Perspective on Christian Purity. But we are here to discuss a very timely topic. The name of the book is Problematic, How Toxic Culture is Destroying Feminism. So this ought to be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, usually I'm pretty happy when we're, we're not, like, immediately, like, pegged to the news cycle. But this interview happens to be taking place the same week that David Brooks used his op-ed column to opine about mm-hmm. his issues with call-out culture, which, if I may summarize, and I am not exaggerating, essentially led, to him, led him to believe that call-out culture divides us into binary groups, which— will lead to things like the Rwandan genocide. He's the one who brought up the Rwandan genocide. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of those, like, he went to the exact extreme that I don't think is justified. Okay, right. So what I would like you to sort of um, do, maybe be helpful, is give a definition of culture, and then maybe we can talk about just where your theory might lie short of... Rwandan genocide. <laughs> so what is your definition of call-out culture? Yeah, um, call-out culture is when somebody um, who is often in a prominent position, either in feminism or a celebrity of some kind, or um, somebody who is a politician, um, makes a mistake. They screw up in some way. They say something weird or wrong or something that is um, very often it's something that's um, mimicking racism or it's accidentally anti-Semitic and stuff. And I say mimicking and accidentally in ways to say that it's not necessarily intent. Um, and so, But what happens is that celebrity is canceled. That person is no longer a part of feminism. You have to append their name with something that's like, oh, this is um, Kevin Hart. He made those jokes about beating up his gay son sort of thing. Um, and, stuff. and that sort of call-out culture becomes the scarlet letter of who that person is now uh, in feminist circles. And so it becomes about who you can um, interact with, who you can, uh, whose art and content you can consume and things like that in this goal of looking for a perfect feminism. So I have some questions and some Mm -hmm. problems. (laughs) So one issue I think is that 
your definition is is maybe different than Brooks's. And it's definitely different mm-hmm. than the example that Brooks used. And I guess what I'm trying to draw attention to is that people are kind of debating call out culture. Mm-hmm. And I use a little scare quote with my hands there. And I I think that we're, there's not a lot of um, precision mm-hmm. about what that means. Because, for instance, like Brooks seemed to conflate something that was a serious accusation of violence against one person. And then the second example was someone that had written a snarky post. Mm -hmm. And you can debate whether the snarky post should have gotten the same kind of censure as someone who was accused of sexual violence. Mm -hmm. But those are two very different things. Yeah. And And to be called out for as an to be called Mm -hmm. out for maybe having harassed people Mm -hmm. feels different than calling someone out for maybe making an inopportune or immature joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so what something So are, are you talking about both things or are you talking about one or the other? I'm I'm talking about um cuz like both the Kevin Hart thing feels ways, like yeah. a little bit different than yes. for instance yeah. one example in your book is how Jessica mm-hmm. uh, Jones show had like a sort of uh oh, fat phobic yeah. yes. line. Yeah. And having a line in your television show that is somewhat fat phobic mm-hmm. seems very different than making jokes about yeah. beating up your yep. gay son. So where is the where is yeah your large, definition yeah. of call out culture? A large part of that is that um, the ways in which we talk about call out, call out culture and how we define it tend to flatten it out, mm-hmm. where every single sin is the same um, and stuff. So what I try to get at in the book is that each individual in particularly when consuming art has to decide what's appropriate where's the line for them um and stuff and that we as feminists need to be aware of how we're flattening the dialogue and stuff especially when we equate something like Kevin Spacey getting arrested for sexual assault with um the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy who got fired for having made jokes back in 2012 um on on Twitter that were not actually that inappropriate um, and stuff. So we we need to look at how we catastrophize those things out um, in terms of, yeah. So maybe another Mm -hmm. way to get at this is like, what experience have you had with call-out culture? Yeah, I have, I've had a few things of their, um, that happened within like little insular groups. Um, one of the things that I'm uh, a part of is the ex-evangelical group, um, which is a large group of pe- of millennials mainly who grew up in very conservative, very um, strict evangelical culture who got to their 20s and went, no, this is not. Which is another topic yeah. I would love to explore with you, yeah. but let's yeah. stick with your yeah. We'll, we'll but, stick with color culture for but now. But one of the things that I saw happen in that that I then saw mimicked in feminism was this fundamentalist strain where, like, you just developed all these new rules to follow. Um, and one of those rules was that if somebody is engaged in abuse or accused of abuse, you must call them out publicly. You must make these public proclamations. Um, and stuff. So one instance that I talk about in the book where I was called out was right before my first book came out. There was this accusation against a pastor um, who's actually here in the Minneapolis area um, and stuff. And I was talking with one of the people who was involved in that privately via email. Um, and so I was actually doing work on it. But because I wasn't doing that work publicly, I was accused of um, choosing money over my um, over my standards on um, choosing money over abuse victims, essentially. Um, and, so, and that was one thing that really 
bothered me and was probably one of the genesis for the book was because I was suddenly out of this culture. I was kicked out of this developing group because I chose to do something privately rather than publicly. And that's one of the elements to call up culture is that it's always public. You're always um, saying something on Twitter. You're always performing your feminism correctly um, in a lot of ways. And that is one of the things that I think led to the right-wing definition of virtue signaling, where you're just doing this to gain points in the performance of your uh, leftist values. So I feel like one problem in discussing call it culture, besides the fact that it does seem to encompass just a lot of different levels of abuse, Mm -hmm. levels of call out, Mm -hmm. like there's there's calling people out within your within a smaller group. There's Mm -hmm. calling people out like in public public and calling Mm -hmm. people on a Twitter sometimes isn't really the same things as like a public like there's Mm -hmm. Twitter is one group and then there's like a broadcast television group and Mm -hmm. there's like national media group. So in addition to there being these levels of of publicity and levels of um, sin, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, your book has a lot of passive voice, mm-hmm. um, which is, I mean, I think, I mean, I understand when you when you do that, like I, I understand mm-hmm. why you are, but there's sort of like critics say mm-hmm. and people get excluded. And I'm wondering, like, where you see, like, what is specifically happening? Like, mm-hmm. when people get excluded, like a few of your examples, mm-hmm. I, um, to me, like, okay, uh, the Jessica Jones mm-hmm. example. Um, you talk about um, a woman, a, a feminist, who calls out the show for making this mm-hmm. fat phobic. No, it's not mm-hmm. even really a joke. It's like within yeah. the context of mm-hmm. I'm a big Jessica Jones fan. Mm-hmm. Within the context of the show, as you point out, the line, which is what is it? Um, one minute in the it, it's one of those like one minute on the treadmill, like five minutes on the burger or something yeah, like yeah, that. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's, no, it's like you have yeah. a you, you, two minutes eating the burger, yeah. twenty minutes on the treadmill. It's like yeah. making it's making a mm-hmm. reference to having to work out to. Mm-hmm. balance out calories, which is also scientifically not a, not a very mm-hmm. um, st- sound observation. Yeah. And within the context of the show, she's kind of being self-hating, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's not even like the joke is really making light. But anyway, so this feminist call, calls out the show, and you write about how, you know, suddenly it becomes not, you. It's uh, it's not available to us to be able to enjoy the show. And excuse me for picking this out real mm-hmm. specifically, but my question is, the show kept on going. Yeah. And lots of feminists enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. So beyond like this one woman kind of trying to spoil the party, what is the thing that is objectionable here? From what I see, um, I'm one of those extremely online feminists where I'm on Twitter all the time and stuff. And what happens when something like that takes hold is that if you mention you like it, if you say something, then you'll, your mentions will be filled with people saying, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this, or something like that. So you are—I feel if you're a prominent feminist, you end up having to consistently qualify what you're doing. Like, if I mention that I like this Andy DeFranco song and stuff, somebody will mention the plantation incident. Right. So, so. there's, like, for me, though, like, so I'm—I think I'm— I'm a feminist. I think I'm. Mm-hmm. I 
some prominence. <laughs> and I feel like for me, and maybe this is just a, a way of dealing with it that avoids the issue. Maybe literally it is. <laughs> like, I just have kind of made a decision, like, some criticisms I don't feel are valid. So, <laughs> yeah. yep. so my yep. mentions getting filled up is like mm-hmm. block, 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 mm-hmm. block, 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 you know, um, and I, I feel like, like I guess the, my question is, like, I don't think anybody ruined—I don't think the, there is a ton of people out there inveighing against the Jessica Jones show and that it's gotten spoiled in any ma- mass way. It's maybe like—it mm-hmm. seems like a pretty insular group of people that are that want you to qualify yourself all the time. Not necessarily. From what I've seen, um, also that sort of thing can also um, lean out into— the careers that feminists are trying to build in a lot of ways. As a freelance writer, um, there are things where it's like, well, I want to talk about this one critical um, area and stuff that runs contrary to current feminist opinion. And it ends up being, well, that's not appropriate for us right now. Like, we don't want to take the heat from it um, sort of thing. Responses from from editors and things like that, where it's something that if you aren't going with that general flow in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, you end up— um, being turned down. <laughs> so how much is this a problem in, in culture writ large and how much of it is just a problem like within the subculture of like very online feminism? I think it's both. I think that a lot of what we see when we like, see like David Brooks writing about it in in the newspaper and stuff is that he is seeing a lot of that culture leaking out um, into mainstream culture. Um, and stuff. In some ways, that can be a good thing. Like we've we've been talking about R. Kelly for years and years and years and stuff, and now we have a documentary about it, and we have a lot of people he's being investigated um, now um, and stuff. And so it can lead to to good things, but it also leads to things like companies being afraid to employ certain artists because of that backlash that happens. Because of that backlash. Mm-hmm. So what are the artists you're thinking mm-hmm. of? I'm thinking particularly of the, the I forget his name, the guy from Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Mm-hmm. James Gunn. Yes. Um, but f- I would say, like, for instance, mm-hmm. James Gunn's an interesting example because he was targeted by right-wing groups. Mm-hmm. Like, this wasn't a problem of insular yeah. perfectionist mm-hmm. feminism. That's an example of right-wing trolls taking advantage of sensitivities around Mm-hmm. you know, sexually provocative jokes and trying to get him fired. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, we're going to call this guy out as problematic. It was, mm-hmm. we're going to go through his tweets and see if he said anything mm-hmm. even remotely controversial, and then we're going to try to get him fired. But it's using those same tools that feminists like to use at the same time and stuff. My friend um, Elio made a joke about— um, Elio Cruz, he works, uh, he's a writer and has worked for NBC Out and stuff. Um, He made a joke about, I think it was Selena Gomez, and her fans went through his tweets and found uh, stuff back from 2009 where he had tweeted something inappropriate. And so it's using those sorts of tools where it's, I know if we highlight this problematic thing, we can help destroy this person. And I think a lot of that began to be developed in feminist culture because we— had the, well, they're not appropriate, so we're canceling them. But stealing the tool or appropriating mm-hmm. the tool, like, doesn't mean the tool isn't 
useful? Like to me, there seems mm-hmm. to be one part of this is that you can kind of tell if the if there's abuse of this method going on by who's mm-hmm. using it, right? Yeah, in like, a lot of ways, yeah. If it's mm-hmm. being used as specifically like want to ruin this person's like. If your mm-hmm. first goal is ruining the career and then mm-hmm. you work yourself work backwards to mm-hmm. try and find the thing that ruin it, that seems mm-hmm. to me like an obvious reason for skepticism of anything that's found. That is true, but it's like, also very often framed as not something that was um, like very often when like the media reports on it, when we when it finally gets out to a wider audience and stuff, that beginning of it is obscured. Right. So, so one thing mm-hmm. here I feel like here is just to ask, like I'm trying to think about this conversation and, and what you've written about as mm-hmm. as what are the tools that someone who, you know, it was a well-meaning white person, again, core audience mm-hmm. of this show, like what tools can they use to navigate a world that has become more complicated. I think complicated mm-hmm. in a good way. I think, and, and you say this, which is mm-hmm. that we should be more sensitive than mm-hmm. we used to be around all of these things. We yeah. should be more sensitive. We should be looking at things that we used to think were funny and maybe not so funny anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I, I, I sort of the part of me is feeling like um, you have this awakening where you realize, oh, so much of the culture I used to mm-hmm. consume was patriarchal and white mm-hmm. supremacist and I really need I want to be I want to be more thoughtful about the culture I consume now and I would say that that's a good thing and you're kind of writing about an overcorrection mm-hmm. right yeah and I just worry or wonder if that overcorrection is happening in the culture at large really or if again like mm-hmm. it's really just this kind of concentrated subculture like, is mm-hmm. there, can you think of an example? Like, so James Gunn mm-hmm. is an example, but that's not call-out culture. That's appropriating mm-hmm. the tools of call-out culture, yes. I would yeah. say. And if it hadn't, if they hadn't appropriated those tools, they would have mm-hmm. used, I mean, they just had They would have found another way. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. do you think overcorrection around, like, social justice stuff is a problem that we're seeing? I think it's a problem that affects a lot of, well-meaning white people in terms of how they talk about things um, and how they and which critics they choose to listen to. Okay. Um, and stuff. it makes it very hard. Um, like when I was a little baby feminist back in 2009, 2010, trying to figure out things to listen to, I didn't have the tools in front of me to de- determine what was good and what was bad mm-hmm. uh, in terms of feminist criticism. And so I just figured it's feminists, then I'll, you know, re- then I'll go for it and stuff. And luckily, I had an English degree, so I had some literary criticism background as well. Um, but like during that time when searching for feminist reviews and stuff, I found stuff that was from TERFs that was right. t- saying— Trans-exclusionary yeah. radical feminists. Yes, yes. Yep. That was like saying that— I mean, we know that Joss Whedon's feminism is kind of shallow and stuff. But, but again, that, like, like I would say, like, yeah. follow culture for Joss Whedon. Glad that happened. Yeah. Glad we had Joss Whedon's wife yeah. <laughs> come forward and talk about his mm-hmm. uh, way that he cheated on her mm-hmm. and the way that he kind of was a predator uh, on 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 some, mm-hmm. some younger women. So, uh, but anyway, go on with jo- about Joss yeah. Whedon. Sorry, interrupted yeah. you. Yep. The review that I found was saying that was— Taking the posi- the very, like, very extreme position of um, that all heterosexual sex is rape because of the power differential between Andrew men and women. Uh, no, it was some 
it was uh, uh, somebody else. I don't remember. I who, believe Andrew was, Dorton, yeah. that's her famous yeah, theory, yeah, but, too. But it was but yeah. it was building off of that okay. um, and stuff. And therefore, like, Firefly was a bad show because it showed okay. Zoe and Walsh having, you know, basic matter married yeah, right. sex um, and stuff. And so that was the sort of thing where, like, when I found that as a baby feminist, like, I did have an internal meter because I know literary criticism to be like, wow, this is a little bit crazy. But I also— um, looked at, like, I look at the people who are learning about feminism now and how it's really hard to navigate that that ground of, like, okay, how do I be more sensitive? Who do I listen to? Because there's so many different voices saying, no, you can't listen to that person. You can't listen to that person. Uh, no artist in this area is good right. um, sort of thing. It seems to me that what you're calling for here it is a conversation mm-hmm. that a lot of progressive white people mm-hmm. and let's be f- fair i actually have a thought about color culture and problematic culture and people of color but um i want to get to but uh it it feels like to me the thing that you're talking about is a is a process that happens a lot of time just internally mm-hmm. for an individual like newly woke white person mm-hmm. and also in these fairly narrowly self-defined communities of online, very mm-hmm. online feminists. Yeah. And and because I think that, like, and the reason I also specify white people is that every time I, I see a discussion about problematic culture and whether or not, like, we should consume mm-hmm. it, I'm reminded of something that a friend of mine who's black said, which is that those conversations are almost always about white people and mm-hmm. whether or not a well-meaning white person could consume it because people of color and other marginalized people have had no other choice but to consume problematic culture for most of the history of this country. Yeah. Like, they don't have the luxury of mm-hmm. being, for instance, like rap music that has a lot of problematic stuff. Mm-hmm. That's their music. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, mm-hmm. they, the, I don't... <laughs> Yeah, and it's I kind of, they, they yeah. don't, they're not. It's problematic, sure, mm-hmm. but it's also the thing that is theirs. Yeah, right. And it's the the quandary of like, well, they finally got um, movies starring black leads that were successful in right. Hollywood and stuff. And the ones like Medea, well, yeah, yeah. You get the um, you get like the Black Panther superhero movie that finally does well and stuff. And so there's this sense that like, oh, you. Probably shouldn't call it out as problematic in any way because Hollywood might look at that and go, uh, uh-uh. uh. Or well, I would what I would say with the sort of the message mm-hmm. that I got from that conversation was it's not so much we shouldn't call it out as problematic; mm-hmm. it's that when your cultural, you know, consumption is so narrowly defined because you just it, most of the culture is not for you, mm-hmm. you either are consuming things that are not for you and have to kind of blow by problematic because you already understand that this is a this is a. A, a film that is like heteronormative. This is a mm-hmm. film that is like white centered. This is a film that has all is centered on people that aren't you, but you want to go to the movies. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to consume it. And then there's things like Black Panther, which is not so much like we can't call it out as as problematic, but rather that the people who are already marginalized have to exist in a world where they can both consume something and enjoy it and know that it's problematic. Yes. I feel like it's well-meaning white people mm-hmm. who are stuck. Yeah. Who get stuck on this. Yep. Who, like, feel like it's a binary. hmm You know? Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because well-meaning white people tend to work in binaries in a lot of ways. Um, and so because of how well, they have to define with, yep. themselves as well-meaning. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which is itself yeah. like a self-defining binary. Yes. Not, yep. 
people don't want to allow, mm-hmm. like, well, I'm well-meaning, but there are shades of yes. behavior. Anyway, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's that sort of thing where, like, especially for um, liberal people who are, um, I, w- I would call them right now, the, like, the resist crowd. That yeah. well-meaning Hashtag white people. Who, yeah. Yes. Who um, figured out in 2016 that, oh, my gosh, we there's live in sexism. A racist, and we live in yeah. a racist country. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, um, where th- all this stuff is brand new to them. Right. Um and, so, and I fear that in how we have executed call-out culture and stuff, we are um, not doing anything for the people who are starting at square one. Right. So they don't have the background. They don't have the um, the necessarily nuance of an approach to be able to look at something and go, oh, that's problematic. I can't, like, you know, I can still consume it without having the the um, problems. Um, and so and so. It becomes, because they're so used to working in binaries, because of being white, because of being privileged and stuff, they end up um, leaning into those binaries when they um, become feminist, when they discover. They get uh, woke. Yes. There's, well, there's, you know, I mean, <laughs> we, we, we might have a discussion about religion in a minute or so, but mm-hmm. um, you and I both are familiar, maybe you know, in religious circles, there is no no one so uh, insistent on purity than a convert, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So those newly converted to wokeness insist on purity in a mm-hmm. way that people who have kind of marinated yep. in their ideas for a while longer mm-hmm. aren't. Yeah, and this is something that I sort of wrote for um, those people who are in that position, um, sort of wanting to— get them to look at actual feminist theory, read some feminist theory, and understand that this debate that they're entering into isn't new. Right. This is something that's been going on for decades um, and that we have the materials to understand and to talk it through and that it's not something that's going to be solved simply by turning off um, a Harvey Weinstein movie. Right. Let's take a quick break uh, for my very valuable sponsors, and we'll be right back. Regular listeners of the show know how I feel about New Year's resolutions, um, which is that I am kind of against them. I believe in New Year's intentions, and I also believe in being aware that the New Year is an arbitrary time to start something. I mean, it's good, it's symbolic, whatever. All that said, you should take your health seriously. And if you need an arbitrary time of the year to start taking it seriously, New Year's is a good one. But taking your health seriously doesn't mean punishing yourself. And that is why I am really glad that Ritual is a sponsor of the show. Ritual vitamins are a delightful way of taking care of yourself. They are beautiful. They're like see-through in this cool way. They are minty, which I never really thought of as being like a real key thing in a vitamin. But if it is pleasant to take your vitamins in a grown-up, non-chewable way, like you do it. You want to do it. I take my ritual vitamins. It's something I actually look forward to. And also they can be taken on an empty stomach, which is nice if you are a person of habits, like let's say rituals, you can always take your ritual vitamins first thing in the morning when you think about it and you don't have to worry about getting something in your in your tummy first. And ritual vitamins are also made especially for women. Their women's vitamin is made especially for women. It is an obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual essentials have the nutrients that most of us don't get enough of, all in their purest, cleanest forms. No shady additives or ingredients that actually do more harm than good. 
The two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to build a stronger foundation for better health. From D3 to omega-3, Ritual Essential for Women fills the gaps in a woman's diet, all with that fresh minty flavor and no fishy aftertaste. And if you are a person who is thinking of adding to your family, Ritual Essential Prenatal is conceived to deliver the essential nutrients from DHA to folate that a woman needs at every stage. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are 100% out there for the world to see. A subscription is easy to start. It's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month. Better health doesn't happen overnight. Start your year with your Essential for Women, a small step that helps create a healthy foundation for 2019 and beyond. Visit ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's ritual.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I'm glad you qualified that this book is sort of for the newly woke. The alarm mm-hmm. clock just went off. They mm-hmm. are now awake. Yes. Because there was a part of me reading this that I was like, wow, you're giving a lot of ammunition to the David Brookses of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, who I do think, who have their own kind of very powerful megaphones and influence. And I think, for instance, like people like my husband, who actually totally newly woke, completely mm-hmm. newly woke, He's the kind of person that's, like, susceptible to the argument that David Brooks is making. Because mm-hmm. David Brooks would basically make an argument looking at the extremes of call it culture and saying, see, it's bad. Mm-hmm. So let's not do it. But that's not exactly what we should take away from some of these extremes. No, my my argument is always nuance. Right. Like, you have to defi- decide for yourself what's what you can handle, what's appropriate for you. It's the, to go back to my evangelical roots, it's the Romans 14 <laughs> approach of, of saying that you, um, 
you feel what is out what's appropriate for you. You feel out what you can handle um, and stuff, and you find trusted voices that you can follow um, in that. And when something problematic comes up where it's um, something very serious or something, you can join in that call-out culture and stuff, but you don't want to make that the entirety of your feminism. Um, I feel like one lesson that I want to say to people who— see color culture as an example of of overcorrection and therefore we should abandon it's mm-hmm. funny people who 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 critique the left always see overcorrection as proof that we should just abandon the project entirely mm-hmm. unlike like capitalism they're like overcorrecting well let's just tinker let's mm-hmm. tinker around the edges with capitalism no um is that uh we should always be asking ourselves who had something to lose and who had something to gain by doing the call out Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I always groan when people like David Brooks and Jonathan Chait and all those people do these essays about call-out culture, because it's always a white old dude in the establishment. He has a lot to lose right. if call-out culture finally gets to him. Right. Um, and, stuff. and so they're always writing from a position of fear, where they are like, well, what if this one thing happens and it's twisted and people don't believe me and whatever. It's the it's the man who gets afraid of being accused of a false rape al- al- allegation or something like that um, and stuff where they have a lot to lose in that situation, whereas the women doing the call out, um, depending on what where they are in relationship to the man, um, often are trying to do their feminism correctly right. and make sure that, like, the people that have the megaphones are the people who should have the megaphones. Like, That's we can right. look to the James Gunn example again, mm-hmm. and, like, those are people who, who did not have anything to lose mm-hmm. by making doing this call out. They were trying to inflict damage mm-hmm. on someone who they actually saw as an ally of social justice. Yeah. <laughs> and therefore wanted to make him go away. Yeah. Um, those horrid SJWs. <laughs> and, and I also— feel like I want to make very clear to people who are in the position of kind of newly raised consciousness that you will get called out. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you kind of make public to the world in any way that is is available, whether it's, you know, wearing a a pussy hat or Mm -hmm. announcing on Twitter that you're a feminist or however it is in your social circle that it works out that you have present now claimed the identity mm-hmm. of someone who cares about these things, mm-hmm. there will be a time that someone tells you you've fallen short. Yes. It is, there yeah. is no way mm-hmm. to exist in this world as someone who cares about social justice and not do something quote unquote wrong. Yeah. Especially if you are like much of the hashtag resist people, a white cis het woman. Um, and so if you haven't. Rich also. Yes. Like, rich, well, yeah. Comparatively well speaking, financially, yeah, financially okay, financially yeah. okay, yeah. Um, and stuff. You have much um, less to lose in a lot of in 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 a lot of ways because you have all this privilege um, and stuff. Whereas, where I, as a queer woman and stuff, have had to look at things differently for a long time and have had to notice these things. Um, whereas, you are just beginning to train yourself to walk in another person's shoes. And what I kind of feel like people need to hear who are in that position is you will get called out. Mm-hmm. And just because call it culture occasionally goes too far, that doesn't mean when it really hurts, you can't listen. But it also doesn't mean they're always right. 
Yeah. Yep. Sometimes the call out can be wrong in in a lot of ways. And sometimes it is like I get called called out by TERFs mm-hmm. a lot because I am um like I am affirming of trans identity. I have many friends who are trans um and stuff. And it's one of those things where like this is something I won't compromise on. So when I say stuff like, well, this is socially constructed or whatever, TERFs call me out as anti-lesbian, which is kind of hilarious because um, <laughs> I am I am a queer you're woman. A, you're in, a big yeah, lesbian. Yeah. You yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, um, but it's those call outs that aren't correct um, and stuff, even though it, it feels very scary right. when it does happen. I think about the times that I've been called out because doing this show definitely means that people hold me mm-hmm. to a standard and mm-hmm. that in of itself is in is intimidating Mm -hmm. and I can see how people who I I feel like I completely although I've been kind of doing liberal progressive stuff Mm -hmm. for most of my life like being someone who affirmatively goes out and says I want people to change the way they talk I want Mm -hmm. people to change the way they cast things I want people to change the way they shop Mm -hmm. I want people like to Mm -hmm. put myself out there is like I think we need to make these changes means that when I fall short someone's going to tell me yep I wrote a piece um, for my sci-fi column, which people don't know I write, but I write a column for Sci-Fi Channel about the intersection of like genre fiction and politics. And I chose to write what I thought was a pretty jokey, clearly jokey column about how um, Donald Trump complains that he's the subject of a witch hunt. Maybe that's because he's a witch. <laughs> Huh, right? Yeah. So, and I kind of laid out mm-hmm. like some pieces of evidence mm-hmm. for why he might, why he might be a witch. The strongest piece of evidence, by the way, I thought was he has weird nocturnal habits. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's, He's always up at the witching hour. Always up at the witching <laughs> hour. That's right. Um, he believes he can call, he mm-hmm. can curse people too. Like he mm-hmm. does this thing where he like, yeah. you know, tries to like use his power of incantation to like wish people bad luck. Um, I got an email from a witch. Mm. Um, who was upset and said, I know you're a Christian. Mm. Imagine how you would feel people mocking your religion. And I'm like, Mm. well, actually, my religion totally used some mocking. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually some, in the words of our great leaders, there's a little bit self-mocking. But anyway, Mm -hmm. I chose to not change the column. Mm. And this is my my social justice Sherpa talked me through it in this way, which was there are many places in the column that signal this is a joke. Mm-hmm. She knows you're an ally. And so this is probably like a place where she feels like she can ask for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and she's not reacting to you. Mm-hmm. She's reacting to a culture that isn't accepting of mm-hmm. her. What do you think? With that, my next question would be, does that column further that culture that's not accepting of her? And I would say no, because it's accusing Donald of being the thing that he um, it keeps I also, talking it, There's about. a yeah. line at the very yeah. top that says, mm-hmm. apologies to witches. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you have that sort of thing, like you're, you're recognizing that this is not what witches are. This is not I am what using some cultural practice. Like yeah. I'm using some cultural shorthand to make fun mm-hmm. of someone who yeah. says all these things. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times when testing out jokes like that and stuff, I look at who's the butt of the joke mm-hmm. uh, and stuff. And the butt of the joke there is definitely Donald because you're making fun of his weird habits. You're making fun of his ways of speaking right. um, and stuff like that. I'm not that. making so, fun of witches. Yeah. Um, and so. Who I generally like, think are pretty a, cool. A, like yeah. actual Wiccans. Yep. Like I'm totally mm-hmm. like, that's cool. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I've got friends who who, who are. So it's. um. But it's one of those things where it's a very fine line to walk and stuff. And I think it's something that a lot of privileged comedians fail at a lot of the time. They don't realize that the but like it's the discussion that we had about that feminist culture has had constantly about rape jokes. We're like, who's the butt of the joke in that? Um, and I always say, like, John Mulaney tells this hilarious joke about rape where he is in the subway and he's behind this lady by about 30 feet and he sees that she's walking really quickly so he starts walking really quickly and then she starts running and he starts running and he realizes oh wait she thinks I'm going to rape her um, sort of thing and it's and rape's kind of the punchline there oh, okay. but it's also making Probably fun of in the delivery. yes <laughs> yeah I can't deliver John Mulaney jokes the way he does but it's one of those things where he is recognizing that, like, oh, my position here is that I am scaring this this person. I don't realize it. Whoops. Yeah. You the know. power that culture mm-hmm. has given me, our dominant yes, culture has given me, exactly. is so disproportionate, the, yeah. and therefore she's yep. scared of me. And so the butt of the joke is his own ignorance. Right. Not the woman's fear um, in that case. And so that's something where I look at, like, you have to look at how jokes about marginalization have been done well. Mm-hmm. So, I think this is actually a helpful kind of way to talk about it. Maybe just I'm selfish about it, but I do feel like the conversation we're having now, the examples I've given, which are obviously in addition to the examples in your book, mm-hmm. but like this is a very personal and idiosyncratic journey that anyone's mm-hmm. going to take. Um, not the right answers for me might not necessarily be the right answers for you. Like, for instance, like, I do feel like I, I should be held to a higher standard because I am public, mm-hmm. um, because I have a big megaphone. I should be made to think more about the jokes that mm-hmm. I tell. I um, did one of the uh, Donald Trump is gay for Putin mm. jokes, and yep. I will never do it again. Yeah. Like, it's sort of funny, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but— it relies yeah. on a trope that sees mm-hmm. homosexuality as a weakness. Yes. Yep. To be funny. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And as a as a queer person, I'm someone who's like, eh, there's better material is the thing. So, there is a yep. lot of material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There's one that um there was an editorial cartoon that came out around the inauguration that was one of my favorites that was uh Putin is opening Christmas presents and there's a Donald Trump as a puppy and stuff that comes out of there. And so it's basically saying like Donald Trump is owned by Putin. Yeah, I feel like there's the thing that we're trying to say about Donald Trump when we make Mm -hmm. that joke is that he's like slavishly adoring Mm -hmm. of Putin. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways. And I do feel like sometimes I feel like there's a way to say the I want to use well we only have because we live in we're such Mm -hmm. such binary 
idiots. <laughs> like the only way we have to talking about love is either romantic love or mm-hmm. familial love. And so when we want to mock the love yes. that Trump has for Putin, mm-hmm. like it kind of, for most people, kind of automatically falls into it, right. a homosexual yep. love. Yep. When really we're talking about adoration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about that sort of love you have for a hero. Yeah. And so of that admiration um, rather than, you know, the love that you have for a spouse or a girlfriend. Or and it whatever. sort of draws so. attention to the the few ways mm-hmm. we have of men expressing love for each other. Yes. Because yep. <laughs> <laughs> actually it should be OK for a man to love another mm-hmm. man in whatever way. Even yeah. adoration is not a, a no. bad thing yeah. in and of yep. itself. Yeah. Um, so I, I think what one of the tools we're giving people here, I just want to review for myself, mm-hmm. look at who's making the call out. Mm-hmm. Are they the person who's affected by this? That doesn't mean they're necessarily right all the time, but mm-hmm. it is a real good clue mm-hmm. um, that they probably are coming from someplace that has an experience that you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, what what does the person doing the call out have to gain? Usually nothing, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not usually. Yeah. But <laughs> usually they have stuff to lose. Right. Like, Yeah. Right. Are they doing something to mm-hmm. gain or to lose? And then here we look at the James Gunn example mm-hmm. as they were out to gain mm-hmm. something. A person wrote in to me about being trans and wearing bras, mm-hmm. didn't have anything. Also, there's a private mm-hmm. I should That's another piece yeah. of context, right? Yeah. Is that this person reached out to me via an email mm-hmm. and did not go public with it. Yeah. And I can see how that person would have risked something by going mm-hmm. public with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's one of the elements of call-out culture that I always find really interesting because very often you don't have any other tools than going public, especially if it's a celebrity, especially if it's somebody who's very public um, and stuff. You have no way of doing anything other than just tweeting it um, or Facebooking it or whatever. Um, and stuff. But like, if you have access to email and you think that person would be um, amenable to it and stuff like that for me would be the first step mm-hmm. would be to like reach out in private and then if you get like a response that's really bad or something like that then by all means right and this is also helpful yeah. when judging a call out that's going on in front of you mm-hmm. right like how much was behind the scenes how much was in front of the scenes um, did it immediately go to a PR campaign or mm-hmm. was it something that kind of like, well, we're trying to make this person here and they're not hearing. So we're escalating yep. it, escalating it, escalating mm-hmm. it. Um, I'm trying to think of another kind of good rule of thumb here that we've talked about. Um, for me, it would be to both trust your gut, but also um, educate yourself. Right. Like, you never stop learning in this. Like, I I have a master's degree in women's studies, but I'm still learning about feminist theory every day. And so I'm still reading what's coming out. I'm still doing what I can to learn and stuff because, like, there's no um, absolute wokeness right. or whatever. Well, this has come up on another show mm-hmm. when someone wrote in about um, a situation where she, as a white feminist, was told that she was— um, she felt like she had gotten criticism for both giving too much uh, work to people, women of color, and also taking too much credit. It was like she mm. felt like she was in a bind. Um, go back and listen to the show. It's a show with Betsy Hodges. But mm. One of the things that, that Betsy said that was really helpful for me 
was if you are a white person and you are called out on something, Mm -hmm. don't go to the first black friend you have Mm -hmm. and ask them, was I being racist? Mm -hmm. That's you may that's a step that you might take, but not necessarily the first step. The first step you're probably going to take is go to a sympathetic white, probably white friend Mm -hmm. who is someone who, you know, will tell you the truth but also will able, be able to hear your frustration and your pain so that you can kind of get that out. Yeah. Right? Yep. I always compare it to my mom asking me about gay people and stuff and asking me about gay marriage. Uh, back in 2013, we ended up having this conversation where I was watching um, some special on being gay in America and stuff, and I wasn't out then, mm. at, then at all, but she— Wanted to, like, she was like, so is are they just like, she, she said normal people right. and stuff. And I was like, yeah, they they are. like And she had a friend who um, was one of her fellow teachers who was with his partner for 30 years, um, almost as long as my parents had been married um, and stuff. And so it was one of the things, like, you would consider him, like, a quote-unquote normal person. So, right. you know, and so as, at the time, an ally— being able to translate that conversation so that my mom would understand and be able to take those things that are that would be hard for an actual queer person to hear or something. And stuff. Who's not clo- necessarily yeah. close to her. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And stuff. Um, she wouldn't want to go to the yeah. first gay person that she knows and no. be like, so. Yeah. But it was different for her to ask you who she knew yes. as an ally. Yeah. Yep. Not yet as a queer person, but she yeah. did know you yep. were an ally and to ask mm-hmm. you because you have a fundamentally like hopefully decent relationship. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she she passed away in twenty fourteen, oh. but she she was somebody who I talked to every single day. Oh. Um and stuff. So it's when you're an ally, being the person who can sit there and explain so that the marginalized person doesn't have to, doesn't have to go through that emotional labor, that's something that's really important. And two allies can be helpful to each other this way. Yes. And you don't have to go to like to your most woke friend either. Like mm-hmm. it can be just like two people who mean well just trying to like, okay, let's get out what our frustration is. Mm-hmm. And let's also strategize on who would be a good person mm-hmm. to talk to. Like who would yeah. be a good person to bounce this off of. Mm-hmm. And you hopefully like yeah. <laughs> can like come to a decision about that. And then, I mean, I think this is getting down far down the field, but um, I do feel like a part of call it culture, uh, living in call it culture, if you decide that the complaint has merit, mm-hmm. is to go to the person and rather than apologize first, to listen first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To say, like, what what mm-hmm. what is it that you need from me? Yes. Yeah. How can I make this right? Yeah. Uh, sort of thing. And sometimes they'll have, they'll be happy that you listened. Like, that'll be enough. Um, and stuff. And sometimes they'll request that you take a blog post down or a tweet down or something like that. And so you have to be willing to give up something when you have that conversation, which really requires humility, which is something I don't think we breed in activists very much um, or people who are trying to be activists and stuff. We need to work on being able to say, I messed up. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we should nego- we should talk mm-hmm. more about negotiating times when you feel like the, the call-out was inappropriate. But I also mm-hmm. feel like I, I do want to people walk away with them. I feel like people, I want people to walk away with the message that those are the exceptions. Mm-hmm. That if someone is in a marginalized group, if they've approached you with sincerity, that you 
you really need to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to recognize. Like even the woman, the yeah. witch who wrote me, like mm-hmm. I had to consider her with sincerity. She mm-hmm. came to me with sincerity. Yep. I listened to her with sincerity. Yeah. Um, I'd say most of the time when it's coming from somebody who is actually marginalized, um, who is taking the time to do it, you can assume good faith right. and stuff. Uh, when white straight dudes call me out on something, <laughs> I'm a little less um, inclined to believe that it's in good faith, especially since it's typically um, them trying to call me racist over something. Um, yeah. yeah. I also want to want to point out to people sort of there's a danger in um, I almost want to call it like reverse victimhood. Because mm-hmm. like the time that I made the joke about Trump and Putin – um, you know, it was someone called me out in public, a gay person called me out in public, and tons of people replied being like, it was just a joke. I'm ga- I, there was a few I'm gays. I don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a part of me that was like, I'm going to listen to those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like that feels really good mm-hmm. to have people take my side, even an actual gay person taking my side. Yeah. Yep. And it's I think. I feel like it's a good habit to when you start feeling real good about mm-hmm. some about being validated. It not validation is awesome, mm-hmm. but it's good to ask yourself again, like who's benefiting yeah. from this? Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I'd add an addendum on that, especially with like making yourself the victim of the call out. Is that there's a thing in feminism called white women's tears? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like we're using this manipulative emotional tactic to center ourselves again in the conversation, saying like, oh well, this scary black person hurt me is essentially what it's doing, um, and stuff. And that has um, a very long, very bad racist history, um, and stuff that we as white women need to be really aware of. Because, like, even if we are feeling that, even if we're um, feeling like, oh, crap, I messed up everything, like um, beating ourselves up about it or something, they don't need to know that part mm-hmm. and stuff because that's very much just replicating another um, another bad power dynamic. If you've been listening to the show, you have heard me talk about FrameBridge. They make it very easy and affordable to frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to the photos sitting on your phone. I will tell you a new FrameBridge story. So I got my family FrameBridge pictures for Christmas. Um, We all had a family reunion in Fort Worth, TCU, as a matter of fact, and took a picture in front of the TCU campus. And I decided that would be a great present for everyone. And so I took the best one. You know, and I I sent it uh, to I sent it electronically because it was on my phone to Framebridge, and I made a mistake. I ordered comically large prints, uh, <laughs> not comically large, but larger than you really needed of a snapshot because I misread um, what uh, what sizes things were. Like I was misreading the finished size for the photo size, so I thought I was order- ordering something. That was like six by eleven total, but instead, what I was ordering was a six by eleven print in a like two foot frame, and I realized my mistake like later that day. And I wrote to Framebridge. This was like right before Christmas, so I I had a feeling like it, I might be too late. So I wrote to Framebridge and was like, "Ack, help! I need to cancel this and and do a reorder." And probably because it was Christmas, I didn't hear a back. 
right away. I heard back the next day, and they apologized. They said it was too late to change everything. And they just did the right-size ones, too. <laughs> and I I don't think they knew that that I am the person that they sponsor. They just were incredibly attentive customer service. You should not try to get free things from Framebridge, but I'm just saying that they recognized that there was a mistake on my end and a tiny bit of inattention on their part. And so now all of my family members have both a comically large snapshot, (laughs) which they should feel free to do with what they will, and they have a more sensibly sized snapshot of all of us standing in front of the TCU um, campus. And that is my story about how Framebridge is great. Um, I do use them all the time. I've suggested this in the past. Like, if you have a photo that you love of you and your best friend, why not make it real in the real world? Why not make it something to give to them the next time you see them or have it delivered to them as a lovely surprise? Like, you went out for dinner together and you had some stranger take your picture and it happened to be one of those photos that they usually turn out bad, but this one turned out great. Why not? you know, print it out. (laughs) Why not just, it's like a random thing to just say like, hey, we both look hot in this photo. And I wanted you to remember it. It could also be used for Valentine's Day and your sweetie. Uh, It is just easy to do. Just go to the website and you can either upload a photo or you can send it to them. I have done both. Get started with just a few taps on your phone. Go to framebridge.com and use the promo code FRIENDS to save an additional 15% off your first order. That's framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Again, framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. You know what's smart? Well, measuring the correct size of the photo that you're getting framed, that's what's smart. But, But also kicking off 2019 by planning out what roles your business needs to hire for. You know what else is smart? Starting the new year off strong by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends to hire the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify the right people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash friends. If you love this show and you happen to be a person that hires other people, you should use ZipRecruiter because it is both the best service you can use and it really helps out the show. So if you are both those things, a fan of the show and a person that hires other people, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends, F-R-I-E-N-D-S. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I think there's one more aspect of this we should probably get to um, before we wrap up our conversation, which is maybe even more what the book is about, which is the enjoying things that are problematic. Mm -hmm. So I confess, so I have been doing this even longer than you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel like I kind of had to work out enjoying problematic culture a while ago, Mm -hmm. which into which I say for me, it's a lot. It's a lot like surviving call out in that it's an individual decision every time. Mm -hmm. There are rules of thumb, but, you know, you can't just be like, it's always okay to enjoy something problematic. 
or you mm-hmm. must always reject things that are problematic. Yeah. Yep. There's no there's no binary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's another case of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wanting a binary and there not being a binary, mm-hmm. right? Black Panther might be, we should maybe be a little careful talking about this, but I mm-hmm. also feel like that's a good example because for the most part, I think that's a really wonderful movie. Mm-hmm. There's some violence against women. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> some pretty like savage, mm-hmm. pointless violence against women by someone who is later than venerated um mm-hmm. so you know yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and that can be a, a problematic thing but you have to decide for yourself what you're capable of handling and what you want to be engaged in yeah in a lot of ways whether or not you think it's worthwhile for yourself yeah so. i'm saying so it's kill yeah it's killmonger mm-hmm. that shoots his girlfriend in the head and then yes later is like i actually totally like had my heart broken mm-hmm. at the end for you know, bury me in the sea with my ancestors. Mm-hmm. Spoiler for Black Panther. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and actually, it was I was like it was a, a black feminist that mm-hmm. kind of didn't. I wouldn't say it's not as strong as called me out, mm-hmm. but when I wrote something about how much I liked Killmonger's character, especially for that speech at the end, like to me, and I will also say part of it is just um, Michael Jordan mm-hmm. uh, Jr.'s acting. Like he's such a compelling yeah. actor that for me like he was so much more interesting as a character mm-hmm. and I just cry cried mm-hmm. when he died again spoilers for Black Panther mm-hmm. <laughs> but when I, I said something probably on Twitter about how much I liked his character with someone who was like yeah you know he shot yeah. <laughs> his girl, yep. girlfriend so yeah. and we're allowed to we have I think it's human nature for us to want to like the villain mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and especially to like a villain who somewhat gets redeemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that's something that we go after over and over again, and especially again, in superhero such movies. Such a charismatic so. character. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying that the guy who played Black Panther wasn't, but like... Yeah. Yep. I'm just, I'm just going to say... There was a lot like... of charisma going on in that movie. So, <laughs> so I mean, do we want to offer any kind of helpful, um, you know, our, our experience around this is is something to help people guide them through, like enjoying Mm -hmm. problematic culture? Do you have any? Yeah, I would say, um, like you said, it goes by the individual um, person and by the individual piece of art um, in a lot of ways. The um, somewhat controversial example that I use in the book is Roman Polanski versus Woody Allen. Um, And and how, for me, I can't watch Woody Allen movies um, because they're largely autobiographical biographical and they have those elements of those crimes that he's been accused of um in them they're not um, it's not even so, subtle yeah it's, it's like, not <laughs> yeah yeah um and so it's one of those things where like i can't watch that without if you um, haven't read the profile yeah. if you listener haven't read the profile of the woman that was the basis of the character um for mariel hemingway in um i'm bucking in the name what is the name mm-hmm. of that movie manhattan yes Duh. yeah um who in the movie is 17, mm-hmm. 18? In the yeah. movie is 18. Yeah. She was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very clearly she was the basis for that character. Yeah. And they bumped up the age of consent, her age yeah, in the yeah, movie yeah. to the age yeah, of yeah. consent, basically. Yeah. Um, and so and so that's one of those things where, like, I can't watch that. And so whereas Roman Polanski's are much more, his the work that he produces is much more separate from his autobiography and from those from the crime that he has fled the United States for um, and stuff like they both it's it's 
still, he as a person is still extremely problematic and stuff. But for me as an individual, I can separate those things out. Right. Um, and stuff. So for me, that line is um, defined as like, okay, so how much of themselves is in this? And stuff. There's a little bit of the artist in everything. Um, and stuff. But what does this offer to um, us as a culture? And stuff that we can discuss that becomes a discussion point. Like you, you can't talk about 1970s cinema without talking about Chinatown, right? Um, and I'm I'm sort of a film studies buff, so that's one of those things. He's um, Rosemary's Baby yeah. too, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. And Rosemary's Baby is mm-hmm. like a classic of horror cinema, mm-hmm. cinema that's also like I mean problematic, mm-hmm. but yeah, interesting. Yeah, in the yep. way it portrays femininity and motherhood, mm-hmm. and yeah, those. and there's also. Um, one of my favorites of his is The Pianist. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Adrian Brody movie, which was the first one of his movies that I saw. Um, and, so, and so it's one of those things where um, you really have to look at what affects you personally, um, what you want to spend your time on, um, and what critics are saying who you trust um, and stuff, and decide from there whether or not you are capable of sitting down and watching a movie and, um, like— Doing something um, that might be problematic. Where's your line? (laughs) I guess I would also offer the difference between enjoying something and supporting it, Mm -hmm. which is to say, um, like, I'm not, I don't think at this point in my life I'm going to give up my enjoyment of Hannah and her sisters, Mm -hmm. which is a movie that I saw very, like, when I was a teenager and form, like, helped me imagine. New York, mm-hmm. right? A very rich, very like specific New York, but you know, it's a, it's it is really to me like a great movie. But do I want Woody Allen to make more movies? Mm-hmm. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm gonna go ahead and like allow myself to have enjoyed this movie. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna tell myself. I mean, you can do because you can do that. Yeah. You can rewrite your own history to say I feel like I can't enjoy that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Manhattan, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not going to nope. enjoy that anymore. Um, and also, but but there's a difference between saying like, mm-hmm. no, this this movie has a special personal resonance, mm-hmm. and that's okay, mm-hmm. and this person should not be allowed to make, yeah, to be supported yep. by his not should be. I don't want mm-hmm. to be a part of supporting this person's work anymore. Yes, yeah, and I think. Um, Putting it as this is something I personally can't do is something that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, a lighter example might be for me, um, Mystery Science Theater three thousand and stuff. It's a Minnesota grown. Yeah. It's a very long time thing. Um, a bunch of my friends and I will get together on Sundays and live stream one of their episodes, and we'll do an old episode and then a new episode, like do a whole bunch of different um, things. And like watching some of the old episodes, it's like there are some jokes that are not okay right. um, happening in those. But I'm still going to enjoy <laughs> MST3K because it's something that brings my friends together and it's something that I really like. And so when that, so it becomes a thing of when that joke comes up, I'm like, ooh, that didn't age well, um, sort of thing. And so. I call it out without erasing the entire thing. And I would also, so. like, we mentioned Joss Whedon mm-hmm. before, so I would say my personal position on Joss Whedon mm-hmm. is I think his stuff is now interesting to look at mm-hmm. with the knowledge that his was performing feminism more than living it. Mm-hmm. But, like, Buffy's still a kick-ass feminist show. Yeah. Yep. Like, <laughs> And I still really enjoy Firefly. Yeah, so. yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in but do I want him to be rewarded for his behavior? Mm-hmm. I personally probably would not buy a ticket mm-hmm. to unless I see some more from him. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to another thing, which is that when 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 is it now? When do people have earned their way back into mm. unproblematic? Yeah, I think it depends on the severity of the thing that they did. Like, I would be fine if Kevin Spacey never made another movie. Um, and so if, even though I—Kevin—the revelations about him were really disappointing because he's one of my favorite actors. He's a fantastic um, actor. He's so, so good. Um, and so, But he's somebody who—he was using the movie sets as a as a— Pray as a like hunting ground. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. As a way to look for his victims and stuff. And I don't ever want him to be enabled to do that again. Um, and stuff. So it's one of those things where like if he returns and does another movie or something, I'm not going to buy a ticket, even if he's done rehab and stuff, because I don't know that he didn't like return to that behavior. Um, and so, but then there's somebody like Louis C.K. Mm. who also used his comedy shows as a hunting ground and stuff in a lot of ways um, and stuff, and who has now come back and is starting to perform. And a lot of people are saying he served his time or whatever. Um, and I I actually have this discussion with my girlfriend a lot because it's like, well, if, if he shows up at one of those shows, those people can get up and leave um, and stuff. And it's a question of, well, if he can find an audience— Enough to come back, and if he's shown true repentance, um, and so, so which far, I, no, I don't think he has. So like um, again, yeah, we. You're right. Like this should all be personal judgment. Yeah, like, I mean, there are some people who are in the business of shoulds and shouldn'ts for the world, mm-hmm. and I've occasionally used that language. But I want to say right now, I try. It is my intention to avoid it. Mm-hmm. It is my intention to just keep things centered on what I can support, what yes. I can't support. Yep. Um, like, I was actually going to say as an example of someone who does seem like they've actually learned and talked and grown mm-hmm. is Dan Harmon. Yeah. Who yes. uh, apparently had some predatory behavior. Um, it was brought to light by one of his former writers, yes. I think. Yep. And he spent a podcast, not mm-hmm. just berate, he didn't berate himself. He, like, mm-hmm. talked through it mm-hmm. in a really, like, reflective yeah. way. And I feel like yeah. <laughs> that's our one example. I remember people, people are like, what can be, what can a guy do? There's this one guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's the, the recognition of what they did and the um, commitment to behaving in a better way yeah. in the future um, and stuff. And like, for me, when somebody is coming back from doing something problematic and stuff, I wait to see if that behavior is continuing or if they um, have stopped. Like, are there any more reports of it or whatever? So, I I want to bring this up because I, I feel like we sort of touched on it because it's the shoulds and shouldn'ts and, t- and how the tools of activism, which is uh, boycotts, mm. um, which there was a little bit of a flare up recently about whether or not boycotts are censorship and whether or not um, good liberals should use boycotts as a tool because they can also be used against mm-hmm you know, liberal causes. I'd be interested to, I mean, what I should ask you, you're the guest. I do a bad job of this sometimes. <laughs> what is your, what is your sense about that? Cause that's a call out culture adjacent issue. It is. And it's a lot of, um, 
like I think back to the, I think it was in 2012, the Susan G. Komen race for the cure. They partnered with Planned Parenthood and ticked off the right, right, like insanely. And then because the right got so mad, they went back and rescinded that partnership and stuff, which made the left mad. Um, and they started boycotting stuff. Um, and it's one of those where, um, like, boycotting can be effective, an effective tool um, and stuff, but I think it's one that we go back, that we fall back on too quickly in a lot of ways. Um, I think the way that, um, is it Sleeping Giants is the group that mm-hmm. targets Fox Fox advertisers and stuff? I think that's right, a good right. way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's a good way of hitting people who are doing bad things where it hurts. Right. And stuff. We're hitting them in the pocketbook. Yeah, I think targeted so. boycotts are, yeah, because I was thinking about how, like, people who are advertising on Tucker Carlson's show. I do, part of me does feel like this goes back to, like, what you personally are okay with. Like, I'm like, I don't want to support those advertisers. Mm-hmm. And I can, I will let those advertisers know how mm-hmm. I feel, you know. It is hard for me to make a, like, everyone do this, mm-hmm. you know. Believe it or not, people who listen to the show, like, I do actually have trouble doing that. Um, uh and I do think we should be more thoughtful consumers. I think anything that makes you consider your relationship to capitalism in a critical light is probably a good thing. Yes. <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. like just how much do you need the things that you're buying? Mm-hmm. Right. Like what 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 are again, costs and benefits, as it were. Um, but I was thinking about how, oh, I'm a football fan. Mm. And talk about problematic. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's funny. I actually got an email from someone, someone I hold myself to a high standard uh, in my discussion with Mina Kimes about being a female football fan. We did not explicitly min- mention CTE as an issue. So mm. I hope if that person is listening, just know, yes, that is one of the things that's problematic about football is that it injures the brains of the people who play it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I go and I go back and forth about this as a good feminist about supporting this. And where I have come down is that the sport is so diffuse and so present in culture. I I feel like I want my activism around it to be more targeted. Mm-hmm. I will use my platform to talk about the specific injustices that I see. But... I don't know if if I I personally just can't do that. I'm never going to watch it again. Part mm-hmm. of it, other people can. Yeah, and I my my hat is my mm-hmm. doff my cap to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you have something in culture that's problematic that you're just unable to let go of? Um, problematic oh, yeah. faves. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Um. People at home can't see it, but I have a big tattoo that's inspired by the Great Gatsby and stuff, which is problematic <laughs> in a lot of ways. But like I, that was you're not gonna get that laser yeah. off. It would take forever. Oh yeah, wow. it's it's huge. But it was for what it was one of my mom's favorite books. Mm-hmm. It was something that I loved uh, what, the first time I read it and have loved it every time every time since. And I think it's a good critique of our. Um, obsession with richness and capitalism and, and putting on that image. Um, and so, but it's still problematic in the way that it treats women. Like the women in that book are terrible um, in a lot of ways. 
um, and stuff. And so that's one thing where it's like talking about classic literature. It's hugely influential and stuff, and it's something that I still love. Uh, But if we're going on pop culture, uh, Supernatural is the show that I point to a lot. That show hates women. Like, it— a woman shows up and you can bet, like, if she sticks around for one more than one or two episodes, she's going to have a horrific, violent death. <laughs> like, it's going to, like, um, if she's not killed in the first five minutes, she's going to be killed two episodes later in, like, a huge bomb or something like that. That's one thing that happened with two of the women that actually managed to stick around. Or she's a demon. Oh, well, um, yeah. So, so, so dead or demon. Yeah. It's a fun uh, game. Those are your options. Yeah. Um, and so, so it's one of those things where— I still love that show, um, in part because, like, I love the actors who are on it and stuff. I had the pleasure of, when I was working on the Clinton campaign in 2016, I had the pleasure of meeting Misha Collins when he came to Iowa and stuff. And and so, like, knowing that he's actually a genuinely nice person in person, like, that assuages it enough for me to put up with the the bad writing around women um, and stuff. But I know for some people that's a problematic thing that they can't handle. So— I'm like really thinking, I'm like, wow, those those two examples make me feel even worse about football um, because they're like such manageable pieces of culture and the NFL and college football are such like gigantic things. Yep. Um, yeah, especially I went to a big 12 school for yeah. grad school. I went to Baylor. So, oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. Fuck you. Um, yeah, so. I'm a TCU fan. So <laughs> if I had known... Talk about problematic. I pity the Baylor fan. I sometimes hear from them, and I actually don't Mm genuinely—I mean, I don't. But because I'm a public TCU fan, Mm -hmm. and I will—I just do—I mean, to to my core, I do hate the institution of Baylor University. Yeah. And if people want to know why, like, Mm -hmm. there are just—there's books. I mean, Mm -hmm. like— Jessica Luther has written— Tons. She's written tons. Um, Ken Starr was their president mm-hmm. for a while. Um, it's Baptist, mm-hmm. and yes. they used to, they didn't allow dancing for a long time, and they also had a creationist um, department for a long time. They like, there are just yeah. like let me count the ways. Yeah, they. I graduated. They're also the arch rival of TCU. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I graduated right before Ken Starr came on. Yeah. So I was very grateful that like I managed to graduate on time where I, I didn't have to have sh- him shake my. I don't hold you personally responsible or anything, but man, that institution. Mm-hmm. And also, can the other the other thing people might know is they they basically abetted rape mm-hmm. um, in their athletic department and beyond. Mm-hmm. They just had their Title Ten program was like, um, here's a tissue. <laughs> yeah, and it was terrible because it. This is also another one of my hobby horses where they had the added later layer of evangelical purity culture yeah. on there where they were like, well, you shouldn't have been at that party. Yeah. And like, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Ken Starr said that. Yeah. Like he was talking about, well, there's drinking going on. So. Mm-hmm. And we're a dry campus. Yeah. yeah. So. so they go off campus to drink. Then we can't really mm-hmm. be held responsible. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's tar- that's. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, so that's the the thing where, like, I have that institutional connection because one of my degrees is from there. Yeah. Um, and so, but I, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I use, speaking of boycotts, I use my power as an alumni to say, you know, this isn't good. Right. <laughs> so. and, and that is a, that is a mm-hmm. perfectly legitimate thing to say. Diana, thank you so much for coming by. Um, people can look in the notes, but yeah, problematic. How mm-hmm. call culture is destroying feminism. I wish I could like do an asterisk, though, Mm because I do feel like for people who care about feminism. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, yeah. It's destroying feminism <laughs> for people who care about it. Yep. For people that don't care about feminism, don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> that's not your problem. That's not your problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Diana. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.